Hey everybody, we've got a wonderful show on cue for today. I have a conversation with Al Levin. Al is a podcast host. He's somebody we got linked up through a educational program put on by somebody else. And then we're like, hey, you're cool. And let's keep in touch and chat and let's get on each other's shows. So let me give a little bit of an introduction about his bio and then we'll jump into our show. Al Levin is an assistant principal at a pre-K through eight school in St. Paul Public Schools. He's been in education for over 20 years past 16 years as an administrator. He is married, has four children, and two dogs. Alice completed all the coursework and working towards a coactive coaching certificate through the Coaches Training Institute and is certified in cognitive coaching and is currently in their certification program. The coaching work has allowed him to support the staff he works with in public schools as well as others who are seeking to reach their goals or work past challenging times in their lives. Al is also a person who has recovered from two major bouts of depressive disorder, one of which was quite debilitating for nearly six months of his life. Through his experience, he's become very passionate about learning more about mental health and supporting others with a mental illness, particularly men with depression. In addition to a blog, Al has a podcast in which he interviews men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses and expanded to include deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics of mental health. Both his blog and podcast can be found on thedepressionfiles.com. Al also speaks publicly for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and more often on his own. He has spoken at the Nash, or at the Mental Health America MHM annual conference and recently had a keynote at Miami University. He currently serves in a governor-appointed position on the Minnesota State Advisory Council on Mental Health and also the State Suicide Prevention Task Force. Al has been published in The Mighty, The Huffington Post, Psych Central, The Recovery Letters, Made for More, and was featured in Esperanza Magazine and The Min Post. You'll find Al on Twitter, and you can contact him at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. This was a great talk. Um, it was something that was really necessary. I really appreciate it because it's a chance to talk to a patient who's not my patient and understand why it's important that the two of us have conversations so that we can both better learn and help each other out, therefore helping everybody else out. All right, so welcome back. Um, we have a wonderful guest on our show today. This is Mr. Al Levin. Um, Levin, correct, or Levine? Sorry. Actually, Levin. Start again. <laughs> Levin, Levin, Levin. Sorry. Yeah, but oh, no problem. Okay. No problem. I think you keep All that right, part so we, in. <laughs> we'll definitely keep that part in. So show that I should I mess up all the time, even though like uh, I always say I'm a I'm a brown person with a funny name, and I'm usually usually pretty good with names, but sometimes I mess up as well. So uh, so I'll live in. We got that. All right, perfect. Um, so we actually had an opportunity. We had talked before a bit. We had done a educational CME uh, before we're a couple weeks ago, and we're like, hey, this is like we got good chemistry, and we're talking and. Where I was like, let's let's stay in touch and connect and do something together. And then, you know, thankfully, you know, in my last second um, rescheduling, I was like, hey, are you available at this time? Let's let's do this. And Mr. Levin, you were able to do it. So, tell yeah. us a little bit about yourself, your background, blah blah blah, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, so I am a public school administrator. I'm an assistant principal in a large urban district in a pre-k through eighth grade school so we've got middle school and elementary together in one building it's a pretty small school 
Um, I have four children. I'm married. Um, and I do have my own two uh, lived experiences of two major bouts of uh, two bouts of major depression. And uh, soon thereafter, uh, once I recovered from that second bout, which was quite a while ago, I'm excited that it's so far out. It gives me a little more hope that maybe it maybe it'll be my last episode. Um, but a, you know, a, a couple of years out after recovering from that, I decided. It would be really important for me to share my story, particularly kind of as a leader in the school and the district and a little bit like seen as a leader in the community. I thought it would be really important to share my story and I started uh, advocating around mental health. So I'm a pretty uh, staunch mental health advocate as well. Yeah, I think that's really, really important because we know so much with mental health is the silence around it. And the idea is that it's other people and it's not leaders in the community, people who are in the schools, people like that. So it's really great that you're able to put a face to it and say like, hey, this is something I experienced, I went through, let's talk about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I have to admit, I think I had some pretty awful, awful stereotypes that I'm even embarrassed to say. But, you know, depress even depression, but certainly something like schizophrenia and things like that. And my vision would be somebody out on the streets begging. And it, it wouldn't even be a, really an empathetic um, thought. That was just, I knew little about it. I hadn't associated with it. And I wanted people to know it. It can happen to anybody. And one of my posts on my blog is just, it's titled like a humbling experience. It was really humbling to be as low and depressed as I was. Yeah, and we'll come back to that whole concept, I guess, a little bit. But right in the beginning, I wanted to kind of jump right in there and say, you know, you're a patient of depression, right? A patient with depression. And I am a psychiatrist who treats depression. Not my patient, or we'll get that right out of the bat. You're right, not my patient, right. so that's all good. So we can we we can talk about these kind of things without any any hippos being violated or anything like that. Um, why is it important for us to be talking about depression? So it's, as a psych, somebody a psychiatrist who doesn't have lived experience, I you know fortunately I've not had to deal with the depression. I've always had to kind of deal with it secondhand through through my patients, through other people in my life, and why is why is it important for for me to hear you and vice versa maybe that's a great question i think sometimes i think medical professionals are um so embedded in what they do and in the really analytical piece well let's see what the symptoms are and if you're a psychiatrist about to deliver possibly a prescription for medications let's look at family history and do this but sometimes there's this missed piece of i'm a, a whole person here and there's really the human side that i think can get lost i think a lot of really good doctors remember that and take that into consideration but um some don't. And I think it's really important for somebody like yourself who hasn't had the experience of a major depression um, or hasn't had the experience of taking antidepressants and, and actually dealing with the side effects that you have read about and know very well, but you can't really understand, um, you know, 
how it feels to be and how debilitating some of the the symptoms of depression can be and how um how challenging some of the side effects of medications can be for example so i think it's really important for us to engage in these conversations and i really appreciate that you do that yeah i think you know in the past year year and a half or so i've started to be more into social media and you know i started off doing a lot of the TikToks. And then the thing that struck me the most was the comments, right? And the comment section and the feedback that I got, you know, so I put out a video, humorous, not humorous, sometimes educational, not always educational. And then there are so many times that I would poke fun at the system in a way or poke fun. Not, again, I never, as much as I try, right? Or, or and sometimes if I did it, it would be unintentional is that I would poke fun at the system, poke fun of psychiatrists and I, you know, a, a patient may catch a stray in a way, again, unintentional. Um, but I would get these comments from people who have lived that experience be like, oh my God, this is what my psychiatrist, psychiatrist was like. They were garbage. They didn't listen to me. And I'd write it off and I'd joke about it from the point of view. It's like, oh, this is the doc in a box who does the five minute visits and, you know, just writes a prescription and that's that. And then I'd hear from so many people this is every experience I've had with a psychiatrist. And then hearing from people like, oh my God, you actually spend more than five minutes with your patients? Like, and I was like, yeah, this is what I do. Does, doesn't everybody else get this? And to hear from so many people that what I thought was that I was delivering as a quality patient experience was rare and that everybody else was getting something different was, again, mind-blowing, eye-opening to me. Yeah, I mean, that even came up in our Twitter Spaces conversation. I remember you mentioning some things, and I was like, whoa, my, my psychiatrist did not do that. Um, and, uh, and I think that's important, too, being a psychiatrist who really listens and really, you know, comes at it with some empathy as well. But uh, I know uh, I have certainly had those situations and times where I have not really felt listened to the the appointments are like a two minute appointment. Yeah, doing great. Just fill my prescription. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting, and it's interesting that you mentioned that too. Because sometimes I'll share with amazing educators because I'm an administrator. I'll share with them how amazing the things are they're doing in their classroom, and they're shocked and they believe everybody's like that. And it's like, no, you know, your excellence isn't everywhere. Yeah, and I think that's really important when that gets pointed out to people too. That yes, and just in general, right? Like when when somebody's doing a good job, right? Like I, you know, I get these feedback from patients at times to my own patients, and they'd be like, "Thank you for doing this," and I'd be like, "Why are you saying thank you? Like, isn't this what you should have been expecting?" And they're like, they're kind of mind blown. They're kind of you know, sometimes I've had people be in tears. I remember one patient was you know we we came up with a treatment plan, and it was you know it was something that. I forget, we, you involve some stimulant medication or something like that. And they're like, wait, that was it? Like, that was, it was that easy? I feel like I need to be jumping through hoops to be getting to this point. And I was like, no, why Why do I have to make you jump through hoops when this is the indicator treatment and this is what we're trying to do? Right, right. All right, so that's good. And I think also learning, again, like I've learned a lot too. I know like I've learned a lot also from again, not necessarily my patients, of course, but then also other people's experiences about what to do differently. So it's something that I, 
I always encourage to like other docs and young docs training docs is like read what people are saying, yeah. <laughs> you know, hear, hear back and, and get back from them. So, you know, one thing I have said, and I, I think some professionals might take offense to this and I, and I don't mean it in, a, in an offensive way at all, but I believe like when I'm working with a psychologist, it, it, I think that there can be amazing psychologists who don't have lived experiences, but I do think they can't relate to me on the same level as somebody who has been in a, in a depression themselves. I think there's just this piece of relatability. And I want to be clear again, I don't think that that means they're a bad psychologist or that they can't help people just because they haven't had that experience. But it is so difficult to explain what depression feels like. And if you haven't been there, I think it's tough to really get a sense. And I think the more you talk to people um, like you do, patients and non-patients, I think you start to get a sense and a bit of an understanding of what it might feel like. Absolutely. Um, on that note, like, so you talked about what depression feels like and if you don't have it or don't never have to compress the experience that a lot of these things get missed. I know, again, like I, I said, I've, I've never dealt with clinical depression. I, the closest, you know, this may come across as however, but it, you know, it's something that I, I, I use an example to kind of every day and say it is I'm, I'm a passionate sports fan, right? I, I love sports and I get, sometimes I get way more into it than I should. Um, I've been a 49ers fan since before I was born. I was destined to be a 49ers fan. I'm a New Yorker. So I've been, you know, had some ups and a lot of ups in the beginning and some, some pretty low lows in the, recently. And, you know, the example I sometimes kind of give, and again, you know, it's, it's not the same thing as, so after the 49ers lost the Super Bowl a couple of years ago to the Chiefs, right? And we were up in the fourth quarter, we were ready to win that game and we lost, we had this epic collapse and ended up losing. I couldn't get off the couch for like until three in the morning. Um, and I remember just, you know, bumping into walls, trying to, when I was walking up and just feeling heavy and just immense sadness. I just didn't want to do anything. Like I took the next day off of work, right? Like I couldn't even go into work. And then I think, you know, later that day it cleared up and I was back to normal the next day, right? I slept it off. And, and then I was like thinking about it. I was like, is this what depression is like? Like this fogginess, this heaviness, this bumping into walls, just lay on the couch and just, ugh, despair. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that probably gave you a sense of it. It seems a little, um, I don't know the word to to compare it to a football loss. Um, is, yeah, not trying to minimize it by any way, but yeah, it was just right. again, it was the the physical yeah. aspect is more kind of what I was bringing up. Saying yeah, that. and and also the fact that, and maybe I'm just really tuned into this, the fact that you could sleep it off and be fine the next day. Like to me, it's like whoa, that like yes, you got a glimmer of it. But man, now imagine that for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks where you can't, where you're like that and you can't focus on conversations because of that foggy head and, and just the, how heavy you're feeling, right? And conversations, you lose sense of your focus of a conversation, you lose your memory, cognition goes down. Um, there's so many impairments that happen. But yeah, I think that 
that certainly gave you a, a little uh, look into the window of depression. Yeah, and I think exactly like you're right. Like, you know, I was able to kind of next day I'm, I'm good to go, but it gave me that little like, oh, wait, two weeks of this, months of this? Like, yeah. that would not have been good. So I, I hope you don't just tell your depressed patients, just sleep it off. It worked out for me. <laughs> no, I'm just no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Definitely not. Well, we do tell them to get some get some good sleep. That, oh, that re- oh it, of course. absolutely. Oh, oh my yeah. God, sleep is so important. It's why they use it sleep as torture uh, in wars, right? Oh, sleep yes. deprivation. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. But, yeah, with that, like, tell us a little bit about maybe your depression journey, what it may be, how it physically manifested for you, what it was like for you. And then let's kind of go from there a bit. Yeah. Um, boy, at my worst, like socializing was really difficult and I'm quite a social person. Put me in a social environment and I have no problem chatting with people and meeting people. I love talking to people, learning more about them. I couldn't socialize. Um, I would be out with a friend and I would ask him later, like, was I okay? Like, and, and I really wasn't talking at all. That was, that was kind of the start. But um, for me, I couldn't eat. I felt like I had such a knot in my stomach that I literally couldn't put food in my mouth. And I would be like, out. I remember being out with my mentor from the school district and literally threw out a whole sandwich. And then on my way to the car, I was like, wow, I wonder if he saw me throw that whole sandwich out. Um, I ended up losing about 50 pounds, which, uh, you know, was probably a decent thing for me because I'm pretty heavy. But at, for me at the time, it was just another, it was like the scarlet letter of being ill. Um, I had incredible crying bouts where... I would hold it together at work. I would hold it together when I got home to be with the kids and then just uncontrollable crying bouts. Um, and, uh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep at all. I think there were, was probably a two week period where I slept for probably 10 hours total for two weeks. And that too, you know, is awful for all of those pieces I just mentioned, right? Cognition, memory, focus, and you start, you know, it just, exacerbates the depression I think um I I got I had a lost I I remember driving my kid to like two blocks away I might have mentioned this on the Twitter spaces two or three blocks away I'd been to the house probably five times picked to pick up a carpool and I got spun around and lost and had to pull over and google maps how to get to this place that was literally two turns and three blocks from my house so um, some significant impacts. And then, of course, eventually um, I did. I was certainly isolating, isolating. Um, I did eventually have generalized thoughts of suicide. Um, and I checked with my psychiatrist, uh, who was a psychiatric PA. And he was unfortunately one of those that I would not rave about. Um, he was very indif- indecisive. And anytime I mentioned needing help, he would have an excuse to do something different. So, um, but I asked him like, could these generalized thoughts of suicide, these passive thoughts be, um, the drug because as, um, you know, ironic as it is, we know that there are black box warnings on antidepressants that they could cause suicidal ideation or could it be the depression? He said, yes, he upped my dosage and my suicidal thoughts became 
very pervasive and very planned and I had access, I had a means and I couldn't get the thought out of my head. I'd push it away. 20 minutes later, it was in my head, push it away. 20 minutes later there all the time, every day. And I finally, um, after about two weeks of that, I woke up in the middle of the night having dreamt it and it scared the hell out of me. And I grabbed my wife and sister and said, I need an emergency psychiatric appointment and I need your support. And again, the wishy-washy doctor said, you could take work off, but that could be more stressful. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do and what you're going to say when you come back. And, and my sister said, no, he needs this time off. And I was so thankful and checked myself into a partial hospitalization program for a few weeks. Yeah, I think the partial hospitalization programs, I, you know, I run on one of the docs that's there with the adolescent PHP. And I, I really like those models uh, for people, again, who are medium-ish, high-ish risk, people who don't have, again, immediate uh, means access, intent, all that stuff. So who are able to be managed at home in their own beds and stuff, but, you know, still getting the treatment that's necessary and getting that good looks at them. So it also helped to just have structure, right? Um, I did try to take 10 days off without any structure before the three week program. And those 10 days, I said to myself, I'll go in and see my psychologist. I'll see the psychiatrist. I'll adjust my meds. But having no structure, I would make a tiny list like tomorrow I'll wash a bathroom and I couldn't do it. Tomorrow I'll do one load of laundry. I couldn't. I was on the couch like you had mentioned earlier, just stuck on the couch and and wouldn't go outside, couldn't go outside. Um, it was awful. So the program also gave me structure. It gave me a place to be at 9 a.m. It um, was a structured program of learning and treatment and and then and meeting others uh, so that there was a therapy group too and hearing about others and their challenges and how they were overcoming it. Um, and then, you know, at the end, go back home and be with my family in the evening. So th that was another really important piece of it, I think, just the structure it gave me. Yeah, and I think you got, you know, again, one of the advocates, why I advocate for PHP programs is you get that diverse range of treatment options, right? You get medication as one thing, you individual work with your therapist, the psychiatrist as well, and then that group work, right? That group work is so, so important. People sometimes, you know, say it's, oh, it's group work is stupid. I don't like groups. And part of that can be depression, anxiety, kind of talking a little bit and saying, I don't want other people to see me. And, but it's so, so important. Can you talk about the group aspect of things a bit more? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to, because, uh, first thing I would say is again, my last bout of major depression was in 2013. I'm almost 10 years out and I still go to a men's support group for anxiety and depression every other week. And I love it. Um, I think the therapy group, so at the clinic, in my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, at the PHP, the um, it was considered a therapy group because it's a psychologist that leads it. But it's very similar, but she'll throw in some, she would throw in some clinical, you know, pieces and, and support and so forth and her opinions. Um, and the support group is more just peer led and it's peers kind of like in what I hear AA is like. Um, but the therapy group was great. It was the first time I was able to share and get things off my chest. Um, the, uh, it was, it was good to hear about other people and their challenges to know I wasn't alone. 
um, and to be able to offer some thoughts and ideas to help support them also. What I would say is I, what I love uh, about the support group I attend now is I think the I think all therapy and support groups are awesome, first of all, but I do think the more you can narrow the topic of that group or the focus, the better. So for me, when I walked into a men's support group for depression and anxiety, it was like the most comfortable feeling ever. I knew they either were struggling or had struggled. They had been there. I knew there was going to be no judgment. And I knew that a lot of their experiences would probably be very similar to mine, where at the PHP program, you know, I remember like a 23-year-old female who was dealing with uh, bipolar disorder and, go, you know, like being obsessive about workouts and being there like 10 hours a day at the gym. And to relate to her and her needs and issues was a little different than when I go into a men's support group where all the men are about the same age and we're all dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, but I, the therapy group, though, I, I think they're all phenomenal and I think it's really important to see others are struggling too you are not alone these are not you know and and there's just something comforting about that yeah and I think that's one of the big things as well as the concept that you're not alone and you know I always ask when I you know when I'm on the discharge meetings during my PHP um, patients I always ask them one question is like you know What's your main takeaway from your time here in PHP? Far and away, the most common answer response I get back is that I'm not alone. I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only one going through it. And then when they see that they're in a group with six kids, 12 kids, 18, whatever, however big our groups are going to be, like it sticks with them. And then they're able to see, oh my God, everybody's going through something or other. Some people show it and some people just don't. Yeah, exactly touched on it like the men's part the male men's mental health may you know all that stuff um and it's such an interesting topic um because we have so much bullshit online right about like being an alpha male and depression is for bitches and you know all this stuff that's out there and you know just get over it and we know that depression strikes men just as bad as it strikes women and non-binaries and everybody else like that that's there um people go through stuff we know suicide is huge in men but we don't talk about it or again there's this kind of like be a man and just deal with get over it like talk about that and i know that's some of the stuff that you really advocate for and, and talk a lot about but yeah yeah i think um you know, not only do we hear about the things like you mentioned on social media and such, but I think it's often driven into little boys at a very young age, unintentionally, right? Like boys don't cry, you know, be tough. You can be tough. You don't, you know, don't cry. And uh, so there, there are these early, early messages about not crying, not sharing your emotions, right? And we grow up that way and live by that. I do think there's a big stigma around men and depression, and there is the concept of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. A lot of men believe that's what they have to do, 
a lot of men write it off and say, others have it worse. In fact, that was the last blog post I wrote, I think, titled, Others Have It Worse. Like, don't diminish what you're going through. Your time can be really challenging, and, and that's okay. And you can reach out for help. Just because somebody has it worse doesn't mean you don't have it really bad. Um, and you can always find somebody who's got it worse, right? But so men, I think, really have to understand that it's, you know, I do think that the strong thing to do is actually to reach out. I know personally how difficult it was to reach out. And um, the difficult, that is the manly thing to do is to really reach out for help, whether it's with a, a loved one, a trusted family member, or a co trusted colleague, a doctor, a clergy member, reach out and let somebody know that you're struggling. Um, and I think the stigma around men is even more challenging for men of color, black men, really, they, I think they hear it in the church and in the family, you know, you stuff down those, those emotions and you buck it out, you tough it out. And, uh, you know, I think partly because my school district has done a lot of work around racial equity, I'm very tuned into it. And when I was in the PHP, people are on their own 21 day rotation, people come and go, I saw one person of color in the PHP program in three weeks, a black man. He was there for two days and never again. Um, I go to the men's support group. They have about 12 support groups. They get together with all of them once a month for a breakfast, never a man of color. And, you know, I think people would, would agree men of color deal with um, mental illnesses and depression and anxiety just as much. Um, and, uh, just it, the stigma is so strong. Um, I was recently, because of our Twitter spaces, I jumped on another Twitter spaces around mental health. The first thing I did was say, I just want to acknowledge that six out of seven men in this room are men of color. And I love that. Thank you all for talking about mental health. Um, it's great to see. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge problem that we see, you know, that we, we want you know, we, you know, again, I'm speaking as somebody who's a Pakistani American male, and I see these similar issues in our, in my own community and my own culture and background as well, that like, guys don't talk about it. Um, it is that aspect, that mentality of like, just, again, buck it up, and you're supposed to be the protector and all of these other kind of stereotypes are out there that get in the way of people getting help. And even for my own life, like I've had academic struggles and stuff, you know, part of my journey is that i you know, failed out of dental school before going into medical school. And a lot of that was similar reasons was because I didn't ask for help. You know, I didn't ask for help when I was struggling and I was like, well, I'll just get through it on my own. And I failed out of dental school. And then when you know, I, I was lucky enough to kind of get a second chance, first thing I did, I was like, let's make sure if there's something going on, anything happening on ask and reach out. And here I am today. Yeah, awesome. And, and you know, as far as mental health, uh, it can be all the more devastating, right? I mean, it, the you, you don't deal with it, you stuff it down, chances are things are going to get worse, and uh, you may eventually get suicidal, and then it's really difficult to ask for the help. I do want to say, you know, you mentioned suicide as well. Um, while more women, and this is the research shows, while more women attempt suicide, more men die by suicide. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. so it is, it's a huge, huge issue, massive issue. And I think also kind of like when we talk about depression, 
and kind of like not treating it and pushing it aside like depression lies to you right depression says like you're not worth being helped or you don't deserve that help and that's one of the things that kind of you know it's this kind of the loop the problem that comes along with it well yeah and one of the things i talk about a fair amount is just the fact that every single thing you need to do to recover from depression is compromised by the very symptoms of depression you should be eating well like i didn't eat at all some people just sit on a couch and eat overeat and just eat and eat and eat you should be up and exercising we know exercise some research shows exercise is as good as medication you should be exercising but you have no energy at all you should be socializing and being with people but you tend to isolate because of the depression it just makes it so much more difficult to recover from an illness like depression so let's let's talk about that. So you the treatment and how how you got better. I know you you talked about the PHP program, yeah. Um, and it sounds like you had a lot of support. But what were those things that you did either personally to kind of get better or back to where we are now, being you know ten years coming up without an episode? And how do we identify so for guys or for anybody else who's kind of in this rut and kind of in that whirlpool or getting sucked by down by depression? what kind of things can they do to kind of get out of that hole? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in my case, um, you know, I, I did take a medication. I'm actually 10 years on a single medication that I'm in the process of weaning. And maybe we can talk about that a little later, but I have medicines. I started seeing a psychologist. Um, I believe that those two combined is a really, um, a really positive way to attack the the depression um, through therapy, talk therapy, and medication. I think exercise is really important. It's really got to be a multi-pronged approach um, that you have to look at whatever you can. I think a lot of people lose sight of their hobbies and interests, and I think to force yourself to at least try to um, do it again and enjoy it is important. Um, one of the things in the PHP that I thought was funny was they had an arts and crafts time. And I asked before I went in, like, what's that about? And somebody was like, oh, the raw noodle, the hard noodle activity. Um, it ended up being one of my favorite things, actually. We were in a massive, huge art room listening to quiet music, socializing with others while doing whatever creative activity we wanted to do. And the idea was get yourself a hobby. Even Nobody even really told us this is what it's for. And, and that might have been better, actually, had they really shared why they were doing that. But um, all of a sudden, I started by just writing because it was the safest way for me because I was kind of embarrassed of my artistic skills. But I ended up uh, like being attracted to the pastels. And I would grab a magazine and pull out a beautiful scene and try to make it with my pastels. And I would bring that home. And pastels is something that I brought home to my four kids. And that's something we do together. So I think a, a hobby is really important. Um, if men are struggling and you're feeling like you can't get off the couch, I think it's important to make small goals. You know, if you are so, if the you are so down that you can't get out of bed, you can't get off the couch. Set a small goal, like walk around the block. That'll get you outside. It'll get you fresh air. It'll get you a little bit of exercise. Start small. Pat yourself on the back and make sure you you know that uh, you give yourself some credit for working towards recovery. I journaled as well. I journaled every day through my uh, second major bout, and every night. 
I would write and I ended every entry by saying today in order to work towards recovery I and I made a bullet list and sometimes it was just I got out of bed today or I read a book to my kid um, but I wanted to show myself like I'm working at it I'm doing something for it but I do think it, it has to be multi-pronged. I think making sure you're socializing is still is really important too. Making sure you're going out with a friend, and and if they're a trusted friend, you could let them know, hey, I'm have it's a bit of a rough time right now, but I would love to go out and grab a coffee with you. You know, those are some of what I would say. And and for men who who are struggling or think they might be struggling. Like, take it seriously and think about some of the ways I've talked about, but also make sure you are sharing with somebody that you are struggling. It is okay, and there is help, and depression is treatable, um, and you really have to make sure you reach out and share it. The small goals, the small wins is what I always call them, right, is so important. Because depression will tell you that you didn't do anything that day. And when you, again, like what you're describing, you, you wrote stuff down, you're able to see it and acknowledge it, write it down, whatever it may be that like, I did this, right? Again, even if it is something that's, you know, I don't want to say it's a minor thing, but like, even if it's something like getting out of bed or, you know, I went to the bathroom and I, you know, brushed my teeth or washed my face, like, those are still huge things, right? Those are they huge are, wins. And yeah, yeah, they are huge when you are deep in a deep depression. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned just like washing your face because I've heard about a lot of people who can't get a shower in, they say. And uh, for me, the shower was kind of a uh, an area where I knew I was safe and alone. So I didn't mind showering, but some people can't get in the shower and then they're worried about their body odor and they can't get out of bed. They can't clean themselves because they are so down. And like you said, wash your face. That's, that's an accomplishment and make sure you acknowledge it. It is so important to acknowledge those. Um, like you've said several times, depression lies and your negative self-talk. I mean, I'm always, I'm the type of person who's hard on myself. I've worked hard at it for a long time now through my depression and beyond, but I'm the type of person who's pretty hard on myself as it is. And if you're one of those types of people and you get depression at all, it is easy to start attacking yourself and hearing those lies and believing them and letting yourself spiral down. And that's another reason a psychologist is so good. They can help you understand CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, how to catch those thoughts, how to stop those thoughts um, and adjust them. What were some things about your treatment that you maybe you didn't like that you're like you know what this this wasn't for me and this was garbage and i wasted time effort money whatever in doing this yeah a couple things come to mind when you ask that question um i wouldn't say there was a lot but at the php you know there were many staff members including occupational therapists social workers nurses so there were lots of different people and there was at least one maybe even two people who i just thought like Oh, you are not a good group leader. And I, you know, I really, um, it was difficult for me to listen to them in the beginning, but I just told myself I'm at such a 
low point here, I am going to get one little nugget out of every single session at this PHP, this partial hospitalization program. I will get something out of it. So I worked hard at making sure, even if I didn't like the person, um, that I was going to get something out of it. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is when I had a really a bad uh, psychologist, and it was my first psychologist ever, and he started every session by reviewing the notes out loud to me about what we did the last time, and that was about twenty min- 10 minutes of our 30 or 40 minute appointment. And oh my it, goodness. it just did not feel good. He's looking at his screen, reading out loud to me, sitting behind him on the couch. And, uh, and I think my family doctor kind of knew because when he gave me the recommendation, he's like, he's the psychologist that's at our clinic. I'm not sure how, if you'll hit it off with him. But the, the big piece I really learned about that and advocate around is you know, go two or three times to give it a shot with a psychologist. Like you said, even with a support group, it might be your own depression that's making it awful, right? So your first session might be really rough, um, but give them a shot two or three times. And if you don't click with the psychologist, shop around. It sucks to have to tell your story over again to somebody, but it is so well worth finding somebody with whom you click and you can share and talk openly and that you're excited to go see each week. It is so important. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I always tell my patients um, or even just in general is that you know, I could have gone to Harvard and Yale and Stanford and had all these degrees and publications and blah, 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 blah. But like, if I can't connect with you, uh, doctor to patient wise, the relationship is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what all those things on the wall may say, you know, and if I went to humble schools and, you know, just barely got by and, you know, have, you know, just got the degree and X, Y, and Z, like, we have a connection and we can do work together and help like that person's going to be more valuable. For um, sure. So having, yeah, having that and being able to recognize like this isn't working or it is working and leaning into it or getting out of it is really, really tantamount to how things go. Yeah, absolutely. With, you know, one of the things I think that you've done also you've described doing is, um, your podcast, right? You know, that's kind yeah. of what we've got there. And, and that's one way that you've worked with it. Talk to us about your podcast, what it, you know, the idea behind it, how, how it kind of started off and where it's yeah. kind of gone to. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, so when I first decided to open up about my depression, I started a blog and from the blog, I decided I, I wrote about my story and then I wrote some other pieces and I realized I couldn't even Google and find my own blog. So I created a Twitter account just to drive people to my blog. And I started getting noticed and I was doing some public speaking as well about depression and my sharing my story. And I was, um, I became noticed by some people and somebody called me. Um, it's actually a pharmaceutical. So I was a little uh, nervous at first about big pharmas, but um, Janssen, oh, big pharma, oh, big pharma. <laughs> Janssen, which is a division of Johnson and Johnson, um, they say this is their way to give back to the community. Each year, they have an on a conference, in person conference for online advocates of all different chronic illnesses, and it's really cool because you get all of these 
um, advocates together who talk about how do you advocate around your mental illness. And it's really phenomenal. And somebody reached out to me from my blogging and said, hey, I work for Janssen. I'd love to have you apply for this conference. We have tons of people around HIV, around cancer and so forth. But we would love to ramp up our mental health advocates. And you're not a shoe in You have to apply. And I got accepted. And it was an amazing conference. And they had Twitter there. They had Facebook there. Um, some of the advocates are amazing, um, and and some are really well known on Twitter, on TikTok, um, because of their huge followings. And uh, from that conference, uh, I went. I've gone about four times, and one time, one of the early sessions, there wasn't even a session on podcasting. But I decided I walked away from there. Katie Morton is a big uh, YouTuber. And she's a psychologist. And uh, I met her. And she gave me a connection to Paul Gilmartin, who uh, is the pod- has the podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I decided to reach out to him after this conference and said, hey, I'm thinking about a podcast. He was super cool and gave me a ton of advice and suggestions. And I, it's kind of funny. The way I started was I wanted to share lived experiences of depression um, with men from men. So I would interview men. Uh, I bought, I knew nothing about podcasting. I bought two mic stands, two cheap mics that came with headphones. And I invited men from my support group down to my basement to record. And it was so funny um, because someone would knock on my door and some of them were from other support groups in the same organization. And I hadn't even met them. And I remember my kid sitting on the couch one day in the door, somebody knocked and it was like eight at night. And she was, my kid was like another strange man that you're going down to the basement with dad. And I was like, yep, yep. But, uh, it's funny. I learned quickly a couple things. One is I knew I would tap out of guys quickly. So I went very quickly to Skype where I can interview people internationally, um, which has been awesome. And, I uh, realized quickly that they were men who actually had much more than just depression. Um, So I quickly changed uh, my tagline to say interviewing men with depression to interviewing men who had lived experience with depression and or other mental illnesses. And it was phenomenal. I after uh, I published 80 different interviews, I looked for really diverse men, men of color. Um, I have a Um, transgender male on the show, veterans, firemen, police, educators, um, and just about every single mental illness you can imagine. I don't know if I missed a single one, uh, including DID, dissociative identity disorder, um, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar one, bipolar two, um, just everything. And yeah, I, you know, I love doing it because I learned so much myself. And the big thing is it's, it's about sharing stories and hopefully men who are struggling also hear it and realize these men went and got help and are talking about their story and they're doing well now. Um, and, uh, after I did about 80 interviews, I decided a lot of them were kind of running together and so forth. And um, I was also doing twice a month at that point, and it just got too overwhelming with four kids and a full-time job. So I, I, after 80 interviews, I ended up 
uh, deciding I would just publish monthly. And I expanded the show to include what I call deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics. And that has been phenomenal because it's opened the door for me to dive into lots of different topics. Um, I do have some women on there who have dealt with really huge traumas and talk about how they got through their PTSD and the work they're doing with women now and so forth. But I also interview a lot of researchers. I have a researcher from Johns Hopkins to talk about psychedelic research around depression. Um, I have uh, interviewed a man from um, from the University of Chicago on the fact that he has discovered one biomarker in a simple blood test that will diagnose depression and also tell how how much whether or not a an antidepressant will be effective or not after only one week of usage. Um, I have my most recent episode is a researcher on the topic of delusions. So it's just been, it has been such an amazing opportunity for me to learn so much. Um, uh, it's really, it's a bit of a selfish piece for me, but I, I just love it. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. Cause I think, you know, you're then sharing it with other people as well. Yeah. And I think what we learn is that there are a lot of people who, have stuff to share with the world, have right. stuff that they want to share, not, you know, not just ourselves, but other people that we have on as guests and being able to like put that out there and allowing them an opportunity to kind of put their voice out there. It does, it does a lot. And, you know, we, yeah. other people who may listen, they may learn stuff and stuff, but kind of like with that, when you, you know, you put yourself out there. Um, one of the things I always talk about in, in social media, the world of social media is like the haters <laughs> and the people that are there um, how, how have you been received, I guess? And then how, when you do get those people who minimize depression or say negative stuff, like how do you deal with that? Or what ways do you deal with that? Uh, that's a great question. You know, for whatever reason, I haven't had to deal with a lot of haters. Um, but I have certainly had some and, in the early days, I would try to engage with them and it just got too frustrating. And, you know, they're probably as stubborn around their ignorance as I am stubborn about what I believe in. And, uh, and it didn't necessarily go well. So typically I try to avoid those conversations. You know, if somebody says something that, it, that is wrong based on research, I will let them know that. Um, but, uh, I don't get a lot of a lot of the hater stuff, which I'm really thankful for. Well, that's that's lucky in a way, right? That's good in yeah. a way. So, or it just means that you're putting out really good stuff that people are enjoying. So, <laughs> a little bit of that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Last kind of topic, I guess we'll talk about. Um, you had talked about like you're coming up on ten years since you've doing since you did your PHP and been medications for the ten years. And one of the things that I know we had talked about when we did that Twitter space together and then even just before was the decision about saying, okay, right, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm feeling pretty good and we're doing okay. I want to come off the medications. Um, and I can hear big pharma you know, <laughs> shedding their tears um, <laughs> in a way. But talk to us about like, that part of it. So how, how you kind of came up with the idea or that decision or that idea, like I want to kind of come off. I don't want to be on this anymore. Was there a reason why, or was it just like, you know what? I think I'm good. I don't need this. Or let's talk about that a bit. 
Yeah, there there definitely was um, kind of a combination of reasons that pulled together. For the longest time, I always said I was in such a deep, dark, scary place that I never wanted to go to again, that I wouldn't give up anything that is helping me at all. And I think it was a little bit of that stubbornness that kept me on the meds um, for the, the lo- for a long time. And, uh, and also, you know, there are plenty of psychiatrists out there, I think, that have kind of a formula that I don't know if there's any basis behind really, like, one episode, you stay on a medication for this amount of time, two episodes for five to seven years, or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I think I may have been informed that, yeah, I'd probably be on this for the rest of my life. So I kind of just came to terms with that. But what happened is, as I'm getting older, um, I'm just noticing different things about my health. I never really had high blood pressure. Um, and all of a sudden, my blood pressure's up, even though I'm eating incredibly well, and for the most part, uh, and uh, exercising, and I've lost weight. My blood pressure wouldn't come down. Um, and then it... and you know, at one of those conferences I shared with you, there was a gentleman who's been on meds all his life. He was like, you should check and see if there were any trials that impacted blood pressure. And sure enough, there were. And then I wonder about from there, other things, um, you know, that could be, it could be impacting slightly that I don't even know about. Um, could it be impacting my memory? Could it be impacting the fact that I have col- high cholesterol, although I've had it for a long time? Because as far as I know, there aren't a lot of longitudinal studies that show the ef- what the effects are uh, for extended use. And my understanding is that antidepressants were originally developed for short term, get you out of a, a very deep place. And people just stay on them now. And... So I did decide, like, man, it's been 10 years. And I also, I always had a great excuse to stay on them. Well, I could get off them now, but I'm switching schools for work, and that's going to be all new. Or I could get off them, but, you know, the winter's coming, and that's not the best time, they say. But I just quit the excuses, and I just said, here's the deal. I want to get off of them, and I'm going to try. Um, And I started to do research, and one thing that got me a little nervous was – um, and I don't promote any particular drugs. I'm, in fact, I won't even say what I'm on. You can if you want to. It's your show. But uh, I am on one of the two that they say are the most difficult to get off of because of their uh, half-life um, is so short. And one of the side effects that people talk about are the so-called brain zaps. And so a little of me was a little nervous, but I really researched how I was going to come off of the meds. I researched about what I could do if there were side effects. And I'm, I'm really happy to say I'm at the halfway point. I've dropped down from 150 milligrams to, um, to I'm at 75 now. I've been gradually, gradually, gradually going down. Um, and one of the things I did was get off of the extended release and gradually shift over to immediate release because the immediate release comes in more um, in more dosage possibilities than the extended release so that I could get tablets and I could cut them in half and I could go down at a much slower rate than what my psychiatrist had recommended on the extended release. 
Um, and so far, it's been fantastic. Actually, right now I'm at 75, and it is the first time in my titration down that I am not on any extended release at all. And I'm really happy to be at that point. And I, I'm confident, cautiously optimistic that I'm going to have um, no side effects. Um, and if I do, I'm hoping they're minor enough that I can put up with them for a week or so. Um, and uh, But it's been going really well. Yeah, and I think you're describing the ideal kind of perfect situation of how to kind of go about doing that. Again, we always tell our patients is gradual, steady tapering and reduction and then stopping instead of just cold turkey stopping it because, again, we want to minimize any hopefully short-term withdrawal discontinuation effects that can occur. Um, and again, the medication, I know that we'll keep the names out of it. Um, but yeah, that one is, is more notorious for it than compared to some of the other ones. And coming up with that plan is good. And I know that you kind of discussed or you were, you were saying a little bit, tell me about um, the logistics, I guess, of your plan and, and how how it was working with your psychiatrist about and how that was received. Yeah, so that was kind of interesting to me because um, you know, I've been seeing the same psychiatrist since the PHP program, since I left that program. And I, you know, all he's been doing is giving me the same amount, the same dose, the same thing for 10 years. So I don't really know, is this guy good or not? My appointments are literally like two minutes long and I'm out of there. So, um, so this was kind of interesting to me. Um, when I first, I emailed them and a, his nurse got back to me and said, okay, well, if you're sure you want to get off the meds, you know, we can start that process or you could have an appointment with him. So I liked that they gave me that option. Um, might've been smart to see him, uh, on their end, I was thinking like, I'm surprised they're going to let me do this without meeting them. But, um, but so then what I did was I sat with my brother, who's a family doctor. Originally, their response was, okay, we'll put you at this dose. You're at this dosage. We'll drop you down to like two different titrations down and then be off. Because again, the extended release only comes in particular milligrams that would allow typically about three titrations down. I think I would have been off in three weeks, um, approximately. And, uh, pretty, pretty quick for that medication. I, I personally, but yeah, we'll let you go. Yeah. And so I, uh, I was like, no way I've researched this enough. I think that, that a lot of the recommendations are like 10 to 20% decreases at a time. I went, um, as little as I could. So I emailed them and said, you know, I'm not going to do this just with the extended release. I would like to gradually switch to the immediate release and, um, and so I started emailing them, okay, I need, I wrote out a whole plan. Um, so like two weeks at this level, then this particular date, two weeks at this next titration down, two weeks at this titration down. I gradually, like I said, switched from immediate release, from extended release to immediate release, gradually mixing the two. And then now I'm at the point where I'm only on immediate release. But I had to email them like three or four times to be like, okay, I'm going to, now I want the 75 milligram immediate release. Now I want the 25 milligram immediate release. And after about three emails, the nurse said, you know, this has been a lot back and forth wondering uh, if you could share your plan with us. I said, yeah, I'm more than happy to do that. 
So then I shared the plan with the doctor. I thought this was kind of the vice versa way it should be going normally. And uh, and they were they were fine with it, of course. I think they were probably really happy with it. Um, my psychologist said, why don't you run your plan by um, a pharmacist, which I hadn't even thought of doing. The pharmacist was like, wow, that looks phenomenal. My psychologist ran it by they have an in-house psychiatrist just as a – go to for questions, I think, for the most part. And he said he went to the psychiatrist and and said it was an amazing looking plan and they would be very surprised if I had any kind of side effects at all. So it was really working with my brother. Luckily, he's a family doctor. And also my wife's brother-in-law is a family doctor and I ran it by him too. Um, and again, I'm just going uh, pretty much two weeks at one level and then titrating down as little as I could based on the dosages that they allow for, um, that they offer. And uh, it's for me, I think I started in November and I'll end right around the end of March. I think you're doing it perfect, right? Uh, I think you're, you know, you've, it's a little bit more than I would, in a way, kind of recommend because I, and part of what I try to do is a lot of the work around that and, and making sure that we're able to do that. So, but at the same time, like I, you, you've worked the system, right? You've worked, you've used every avenue available to you, uh, gotten all those people in there to kind of offer their opinions on the matter. And I think, you know, for this kind of thing, um, medications or any kind of treatments, like enough people kind of weighing in saying like, yeah, this is a good plan that yeah. just gives you a little bit more confirmation. So, uh, you know, I also, I also wanted to go slower than what they were recommending because some of the reading that I read say for sure if you've been on a medication longer, then it, it should be a, a slower weaning process. Um, so I appreciated that and wanted to live by that. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, and I'm in no rush. You know, I just I wanted to go as slow as possible to make sure that I – um, some of those side effects just sound awful. And I also um, did enough research that I know about some plans. If I do bump into um, an issue at all, I know about um, another medication. Some people try to transition off of this one because it is complicated to wean, they say, to jump onto a different one so that I can wean easier off of that. Um, and I'm not going to do that, but if I need to, that's one option or maybe just bumping back up to the level I was at before I had issues, if I have issues and stay at that an extra week or so. So I've got some ideas and plans if there are bumps in the road, but I'm, I'm hoping and pretty opt, like I said, optimistically cautious and, 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 and yeah. hopeful that it'll work well. And I think, I think you, you'll be successful with that. Cause I think, you know, what, planning and everything i think you've kind of taken into consideration contingencies right and that's something exactly. like, again, like when i work with my patients like i would say like we'll do this and we'll reassess we'll do this and we'll reassess if this happens this is what we'll do so having a plan in place having a game plan having a roadmap per se it, it's great for a lot of reasons because it allows us that psychological kind of reinforcement and reassurance as well that like if this doesn't go as we want it to, we have an idea of what we plan to do. So that's, you've set yourself up for success versus being like, we're just going to stop it. And that's setting yourself up for failure. So right, right. Awesome. Cool. Well, 
we'll be respective of your time and my time and all that stuff. I got to see patients in a little bit. Um, but how do we, how can we follow along with you and your journey and then any other kind of like last parting words that you want to say? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking that. Um, people can find my blog and my podcast at the defre- oh, sorry, thedepressionfiles.com. That's thedepressionfiles.com. And there's a button for my blog, a button for my podcast, and they can get to all of that. Um, I, I also, I didn't mention, but I'm in a coaching certification program as well. And I think my niche for coaching, um, like peer coaching, uh, and I'm loving it. I think my niche will probably be mental health, but obviously not those who need therapy, maybe if they are doing therapy and a coach um, and educators, but uh, I'd be open to others as well uh, who are just feeling kind of stuck in life. Um, so that's how you can find me. Uh, and you can also email me um, at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Perfect. Any kind of parting last words that you want to, anybody who may be listening along, anything you want to pass along or say? Yeah, I think I said it earlier, but I think it's worth reiterating. Reach out for help. If you are struggling or others are noticing, um, you know, for men especially, one of the symptoms that people don't talk about a lot is anger. Um, if you have a short temper all of a sudden and you don't know why and you're wondering if it's very possible that it could be depression, reach out for help. You can get help and you are not alone and you can get better. Well, Al, thank you so much for spending some time spent sharing your story with us. I, hopefully the people will get a little something extra from this. And, you know, if that, that if we reach that one person who may be listening and being like, you know what, I'm going to reach out for help. I'm going to ask somebody for help. We've done our job, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. All right. Thank you so much.